This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, my guest today is one of the world's leading historians of Soviet Russia, and she happens to be Australian. However, her reputation as an expert on Soviet history is far greater abroad than in her home country. It's interesting. A few years ago, Andrew Clark, the veteran distinguished journalist at the Australian Financial Review, this is what he said about our guest, quote, a short woman, still striking looking, she skips with a breezy but impressive authority from talking about collectivization to the Politburo, Stalin to Putin, love affairs to murder. <laughs> Andrew Clark goes on to say, a brilliant scholar who combines intellectual insight with a magnetic writing style. Now, she majored in Russian at Melbourne University, graduating with first-class honours in 1961, 60 years ago. She received a doctorate in philosophy at Oxford University. She was a research fellow at the London School of Slavonic and East European Studies. For two decades, she was a professor of modern history at the University of Chicago, and then she returned to our shores in 2012. Sheila Fitzpatrick, she's author of about a dozen books, including several award-winning books, including most notably The Russian Revolution. That sold more than 200,000 copies in America, Europe and Australia. Now, these days, Sheila is a professor of history at the Australian Catholic University, and her most recent book is called White Russians, Red Peril, A Cold War History of Migration to Australia. It's just out by La Trobe University Press in conjunction with Black Ink Books. Sheila, welcome back to Between the Lines. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you've distinguished yourself as a historian of the Soviet Union, especially in the United States. How is it that you came to the subject of the Cold War history of migration to Australia? Well, I think I'd have to say it was because I myself became a migrant. I'd been away for an awful long time, 48 years actually, uh, and then I did come back, as you said, in 2012. And the whole experience of uprooting yourself and then rebooting is a really interesting one, and that's, I think, what made me want to pursue it. And of course, when you left Australia as a postgrad in the, in the, in the early to mid-1960s, migration was an acknowledged aspect of Australian history, wasn't it? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big one. No, migration history, it, it became, uh, you know, in the years I was away, I'm not quite sure when, I, I became aware of it in, in, I think, the 2000s, that it had become something important uh, for the historical profession in Australia. Yes, I suppose my point was that really in the post-war period, we did hear a lot about uh, European immigrants, but very little about Russian. Now, you write as an outsider about Soviet displaced persons who settled in this country in the early post-war period. You have no real family connection with post-war Russian migrants, either the Europeans or the Chinese Russians. Uh, tell us more. Well, that's true. Now, of course, I am a Russian expert, and it, uh, I mean, that's my field of, of, of study. And so in a way that made it interesting, I've always before looked at Soviet Russians in the Soviet Union. Now, looking at the post-war migration, these are not all ex-Soviet Russians, but many of them are. 
so I see my Soviet Russians uprooted and landing in another place. Now, on the question of their, uh, that you raised earlier about them being overlooked, the Russians, uh, that is a really interesting question. The figures that you would derive from the census are way too low, in my opinion, and I argue it in my book. I think there's probably up about 20,000 or, or more, that counts the ones from China, coming after the war. And the reason that they are underestimated is that so many of them basically gave false identities. And the reason mm. for that is that they were afraid of being forcibly repatriated to the Soviet Union. The fascinating aspect of your story, Sheila, is that Australia was the nation that took in the largest number of Russian displaced persons? It was until uh, until the US yeah. overtook it. There was a sort That's of right. spurt at the end. But yes, there was a time when Australia was... Uh, uh, th that's a Russian calculation, by the way, or rather a Soviet calculation. I think the Australians had no notion uh, that they were doing that. Now, in selecting its DPs, and we're talking about displaced persons here, Australia used an implicit racial hierarchy. Tell us about that. That's a little alarming when you find it in the archives. Now, you're not going to find it in published form. What you find it is in correspondence uh, between Canberra and the Australian military mission that was doing the selection of displaced persons. Uh, and when that hi the hierarchy, of course, it, the reasons for it are not exactly discussed because these letters are practical letters. In other words, they're saying, you know, go for Latvians particularly or whatever. Uh, they're about action rather than about the, the sort of thinking behind it. But when it is argued out, it's basically in terms of assimilability, you know, cultural similarity. Uh, so Northern Europeans are considered most desirable in that way. And also um, suitability for manual work, because in selecting the DPs, Australia really, really wanted people who'd be manual workers and domestic servants and orderlies in hospital, that kind of thing. We absolutely didn't want intellectuals. And Jews were at the bottom of this hierarchy, correct? Jews are at the bottom of the hierarchy and indeed, after a while, quotas, and these actually are announced, quotas are imposed on the numbers of Jews, Jewish migrants that can come on any single ship bringing migrants. Uh, that was a 25% uh, quota, but it was never filled in any case. So it, it, this actually did not stop uh, Jews from coming as migrants in these years, but it made it harder for them. It delayed it. It made it more expensive. They came instead of coming under the scheme arranged by the International Refugee Organization called Mass Resettlement, they came uh, as what was called landing permit migrants. They had to have a sponsor who paid the passage. Okay. So we've got the people from the Baltic states, they're at the top, but then you've got the Slavs, so Russians and Ukrainians in the middle, and then Jews at the bottom. The title of the book is called White Russians, Red Peril. Tell us more about the White Russians, Sheila. Right. Well, White Russian in my title, uh, it, it basically means uh, Russians who see themselves as anti-communist. But historically, the main meaning of that term, it's the Russians who fought the Bolsheviks or the, the Reds in the civil war that followed the Russian Revolution of 1917. Now, things are never easy because there is a secondary meaning of white Russian. 
remember in the Soviet Union, they, there was a republic called Belarusia, which is now called Belarus. Well, that translated means white Russia. So you can also call those people in English white <laughs> Russians. And Australian immigration people were not sure when asked whether they would take white Russians and where they would go on their list. Uh, they were not sure who was being referred to. I think they never found out whether no, white Russian no. meant, uh, meant people who were anti-communist or whether it meant uh, people from Belarus. You're on ABC's Radio National with me, Tom Switzer, and my guest is Sheila Fitzpatrick, and we've been talking about her latest book, White Russians, Red Peril. Now, another interesting nugget from your new book is that the Soviets were furious about resettlement, which, of course, started in 1947. It reached its heights a couple of years later, so 49.50. Now, here we have the Soviets, Sheila. They're essentially telling us that we had essentially stolen their citizens and they also made determined efforts to persuade the migrants to return home. The question here is, why did the Kremlin want everybody back, including, and this is very interesting, West Ukrainians who loathe the USSR? I mean, what accounts for this strange conduct? It is extraordinary, isn't it? And I spend a lot of time thinking about it. The Soviet Union, if you look at other East European countries, it is, I think, alone in wanting everybody back who was ever its citizen. Poland, for example, doesn't want uh, Polish Ukrainians. It doesn't want Polish Jews. It just wants Polish Poles. And that was fairly common. But the, uh, the Soviet Union wants everybody back. And that includes people, as you said, from West Ukraine and from the Baltics, from the areas that uh, became part of the Soviet Union, more or less involuntarily and, and largely unwillingly at the end of 1939 as a, a result of the Hitler-Stalin pact. So they want all of those people back and they go around. <laughs> there are a lot of displaced persons in, in prison in the Western occupation zones of Germany. They go around collecting them. <laughs> they go around collecting people from psychiatric hospitals and also a lot of DPs there. And most countries are very unwilling to take even their own citizens back, but not the Soviet Union. Now, the easy, <laughs> the easy explanation is they wanted labor. On the other hand, uh, these people from the psychiatric hospitals are not going to be great uh, in terms of labor. Mm. They're going to cost, basically. They're going to be uh, probably on the equivalent of welfare most of the time. I think there was also, as I read it, there was also a, just a, a sort of gut feeling. These are our people. They're being prevented from coming back. This was a very strong feeling. They're, be, they're being prevented from coming back uh, by the Allies, who are now not our allies anymore, and we have to reverse that. And so they didn't even give up after the people had been resettled. And in 1951 too, they sent out an undercover agent, uh, his name was Gardiev, to persuade them to come back. And I had the great good fortune to accidentally, or more or less accidentally, happen upon this man's reports back to Moscow uh, about mm. his attempts to get Russian DPs to return. The Soviet Union, of course, really starts to appear in our public imagination in 1954 with this spy crisis known as the Petrov Affair. Tell us more about Petrov and how he fits into your story. Petrov uh, keeps coming into my story, but somewhat on the fringes. Now, 
most of the Russians who came after the war are anti-communist, and certainly they all had to say they were anti-communist, otherwise they wouldn't be selected uh, by Australian selection uh, committees. Uh, there was a minority of them that were pro-Soviet and sort of left-wing, and they had a club in Sydney on George Street called the Russian Social Club, and it was next door to the anti-communist Russian club called Russian House. Petrov and other Soviet officials went to the Russian Social Club. It was one of their few contacts with, well, basically with anything that could be called Australian life. Now, what is interesting, you look at the Royal Commission on Espionage and, and Petrov gives the impression that he's telling everything that he knows about everything, mm. which isn't much because he was a really incompetent as a spy. But curiously, he is very reticent about his friends in the Russian social club. And when he's asked about them specifically, he says, oh, no, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. I, I don't think anybody was running him as a spy. He's not. I, I don't think he has any dubious connections. Uh, and I'm not saying they were spies, but it, it's he's very definite. And as I read it, I thought, my goodness, uh, this man is protecting his friends. Now, the second way uh, he comes in is when uh, the Royal Commission on Espionage, uh, hearing his testimony, opens, anti-communist Russians see this as a chance to put up their flag and basically say to Australia, here we are, specialists on anti-communism, specialists on the Soviet Union, you know, let us join you in your fight against communism. And uh, they put up their hand and they get a little bit of publicity for a while, but not for long, because the migrant anti-communism goes a different route. It goes captive nations. Now, Russians were quite, some of them quite eager to join the captive nations movement, but no one would have them because of the thought that at heart they were probably Russian imperialists themselves. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. You're on ABC's Radio National with me, Tom Switzer, and my guest is Sheila Fitzpatrick, and we've been talking about her latest book, White Russians, Red Peril, A Cold War History of Migration to Australia. Sheila, let's turn to the book you're now writing, The Shortest History of the Soviet Union, forthcoming by Black Ink Books. Now, you mentioned Gorbachev and how he cops a lot of criticism for presiding over the disintegration of the Soviet Union. The prevailing wisdom in the early 80s was very different, wasn't it? Tell us about the consensus among America's Sovietologists in the early 80s. Yeah, well, that's how I decided to start my book with 1980, because it's such a, a sort of interesting contrast between what actually happened just, you know, not a decade later. Mm. Uh, in 1980, the Soviet Union was in what seemed to many people a period of stability, calm, relative prosperity. It's a superpower. It had, as a superpower since the war, been markedly inferior to the Soviet Union in terms of military strength. It's now, on, on at least on some, some axes, has caught up. So it's achieved military parity. Its standard of living has ridden, risen, its economy has been growing in previous decades. It's now it's now plateaued, but still. So it's a period, the Brezhnev period, before the impact. They go into Afghanistan at the end of 1979, but I, I take it in 1980 that the implications of that unwise move haven't really come through. And it's just at that time 
that Western Sovietologists decided it was time to give up the, the, the previous assumption that the Soviet Union is an unstable power that isn't going to be around for very long. That had been at least widely felt and widely hoped, I would say, during the Cold War. But in 1980, Severin Biala publishes a book uh, about the Soviet Union uh, in which he basically says, Let, let's recognize that this is a stable long-term power. And the other thing that happened, which I fi find very, you know, uh, quite ironic, is that the Library of Congress, that's the main uh, deposit library in the United States, uh, it had, since the revolution, refused to admit in its catalog, card catalog at that point, refused to admit the existen existence of the Soviet Union. So if you look for a card called Soviet Union or USSR, you wouldn't find it. You would have to look for the Soviet Union under the heading Russia, comma, 1923 on, uh, which is crazy, of course. But finally, the librarian of Congress, Jim Billington, who was actually a Russianist, he wrote, this is the early 80s, sometime in early 80s. I can't, he wrote, I was one of the recipients, so I, I, I know it from, not from documents, but from my own memory. He wrote to people in the Soviet field, Sovietologists in America, and said, listen, isn't it time that we gave up pretending the Soviet Union doesn't exist? Shouldn't we have it in our card catalogue? And we all said, yes. Yeah, it's silly not to recognise. So th there's about a decade of entries on the Soviet Union, and then it stops. Yes, but notwithstanding all those Sovietologists that you mentioned, there was, you mentioned 1980, Ronald Reagan who came to power. Now, he distinguished himself from both Republican and Democratic immediate predecessors, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, on the question of detente. He called detente something like a one-way street for the Soviets to lie and cheat and get leverage over the Americans. He had a lot of support. He was re-elected in a landslide in 1984. How much credit does Reagan deserve for helping bring down the Soviet Union by the end of that decade? I wouldn't think he does deserve that much credit, or I, I, I don't see it uh, as at all the crucial factor. And the argument goes that, that basically the end of detente forces them to overspend, and, uh, and that is true. I mean, they, they had a budget problem, but it wasn't, uh, to my mind, the, that that brought them down. If you're looking at their short-term economic problems, the uh, sharp fall in oil prices I think it's crucial because in the Brezhnev era in, in 1980, for example, they're riding on really high oil prices. There are over 100, about 120 a, a barrel, I think, for crude, and it's down to 40. Uh, so, you know, that's not good for a major oil exporter. And my sense of, of what brings about the Soviet collapse is something in quite a different realm. It's the fact that for complicated reasons, as of 1991, uh, there were two presidents in Moscow. One was Yeltsin, who was the president of the Russian Republic, formerly a part of the Soviet Union, and the other one was Mikhail Gorbachev, who was president of the Soviet Union and formerly his superior. Now, these two people were, well, they were bitter rivals, basically. And what happened was that Yeltsin won and he abolished the competing presidency and with it, uh, the, the country of which Gorbachev had been president. At this period in the late 80s, early 90s, 
I mean, it is a remarkable period in world history. The Soviet Union here is basically voluntarily letting go of its Warsaw Pact satellite states. It acquiesces in the dismantling of its empire. It's virtually no violence. How do you account for this? I mean, why didn't Moscow just resist the forces of change and extend its empire's life by imposing, you know, the brutal order on former republics and client states in Eastern Europe, just like, by the way, the Soviets did uh, in East Germany in 1953, Hungary 56, Czechoslovakia 68, Poland in 1981, Sheila Fitzpatrick. It's bizarre, I think, that, uh, I, I, and that's Gorbachev. Uh, it's he who felt he had an agreement, uh, I felt he could afford to do this because he had an agreement that they wouldn't be signed up in NATO, uh, which... Uh, this is the kind of gentleman's agreement, a gentleman's a agreement gentleman's where... A gentleman's agreement you know, not written down. I mean, it beggars belief that uh, that a national leader should operate like this, but he did. Now, it's also... So let's just be clarify here. You're talking about the deal that Bush apparently reached with Gorbachev that in exchange for a unified Germany's inclusion in NATO in the early 80s, sorry, in the early 1990s, the Western alliance would not move east and upset Russia's strategic sensibility. That's your point. Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, uh, there, now, as a sort of background to that, I mean, it's not only that Gorbachev feels he has a deal that he lets uh, Eastern Europe go. He, I think, uh, without put, uh, without force. One first thing, he's very averse to using force. I mean, this is something like, this is a moral conviction. I think he really doesn't like it. He was critical as a young communist of Hungary, of the use of force there, the Soviet use of force, and Czechoslovakia also in 1968. And it seems that personally he despised many of these European leaders. The, the reason that he lets the whole situation develop is that he thinks the people like Honecker and Ceausescu, they deserve to be to be replaced by their people. Now, he didn't perhaps anticipate how drastic that replacement uh, would be. There's also, as a minor thing, one, it's an interesting question of who thinks they're being exploited by whom. The East European nations thought they were being exploited by Moscow, uh, and Moscow thought that it was economically subsidizing Eastern Europe. You get the same situation with regard to the Soviet Union. The non-Russian republics think that Moscow is exploiting them, uh, and uh, the Russian Republic thinks that it's subsidizing uh, the non-Russian republics. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Sheila Fitzpatrick is one of the world's leading experts on 20th century Soviet Russian history. Her award-winning books include My Father's Daughter, Mishka's War, On Stalin's Team, and The Russian Revolution. Now, we've been talking about Gorbachev, and certainly his detractors to this day would argue that he brought chaos and national humiliation to Russia. Sheila, how do you account for this widespread hostility towards Russia across the West. Um, if you read uh, the UK Telegraph, the London Times, the Australian here, the Wall Street Journal, those publications on what passes as the right spectrum, but also on the left spectrum, like the UK Guardian, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Sydney Morning Herald, there is overwhelming hostility to Putin's Russia. How do you account for this? It's true, and it is one of these historical puzzles 
all the more in that the degree of the hostility appears to treat it as if it were still a great power. And, you know, it isn't, basically. So it doesn't deserve that amount of coverage, let alone the hostility. I can only understand it in terms of continuation of the past. I'm the historic enemy for the Soviet Union through the second half of the 20th century, for, for the, sorry, for the United States was the Soviet mm. Union, and Russia is the successor state. And it seems to me that the same kind of conversation goes on about it. And it also seems to Russians uh, that I can remember many conversations uh, in uh, the, the 1990s and the 2000s when Russian says, basically, Russians would say to me, basically, America just hates us. They used to say they hated communism, but we stopped being communist and they still hate us. So that's Well, it's been three Russian. decades since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it seems to me that in the Western press, there's less debate about the merits of engagement with Russia than there was during the Cold War. That's a point that Stephen Cohen, past guest on this program, who unfortunately died about a year ago, uh, he often made that point, that there was more debate in the West about engaging Moscow than there is in the post-Cold War era. I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to think of, uh, of many voices. Yes, it's one of these topics that... Uh, one of these positions that's very difficult to occupy. Now, you're, you're a specialist in the history of the Soviet Union and much of your intellectual focus has been on Joseph Stalin's quarter century rule. We obviously live in different times. Are there echoes of Stalin in modern day Russia? Well, there are memories of Stalin, but people who say this is Stalinism returned, I think they don't have a good idea of what Stalinism was like. But you'll often hear that Putin is Stalin's heir. Yes. I mean, actually, I don't often, I don't hear that so much. But Putin himself uh, has a reasonably high regard for Stalin as a nation builder. That's mm -hmm. what he sees as his own role, a nation builder who's operating in difficult circumstances, trying to put a nation back together after after chaos. So he feels he feels some uh, kinship, I think, with Stalin and is generally approving. He doesn't talk much about the purges. He does talk a lot about the Second World War victory. Now, what's interesting there is that almost everybody who likes Stalin will also like Lenin, but not Putin. He is the exception. He doesn't like Lenin because he thinks Lenin was a nation destroyer as a revolutionary, in contrast to Stalin, who was the nation builder. Yes, and I suppose Putin, despite his authoritarianism and his regime's state-sponsored murders of independent journalists, he doesn't shed blood in the way that Stalin did. That goes without saying, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's also a different modus operandi. I, I don't remember poisoning of journalists under Stalin. I mean, he killed lots and lots of people, but that wasn't uh, individual knocking off of journalists in the West. I mean, that, well, in and in Russia, that's... You know, it's a whole different thing. But basically, the the rate of repression uh, was so much higher under Stalin. And I tell you what, Putin Putin's Russia did remind me of the last time I was there. It was Brezhnev's Russia, not Brezhnev's Soviet Union, not Stalin's Brezhnev's. And that's a very different kettle of fish. And what made me think of that was that I was at a meeting where people at a conference attended by Prime Minister Medvedev. 
But in this meeting, there was a panel and people criticized Putin overtly and also obliquely. And every it was a packed audience. Everyone was terribly excited to be part of this daring criticism. And the people, the, the celebrity journalists who were making it were you know, very pleased with themselves and to, to a degree competing for who could be more daring. And so everybody felt great and morally superior and all, but they did not feel in real danger. That's why partly why they felt so great. And that was Brezhnev's time. Uh, yes. in, in other words, the, the feeling of, of, of self-satisfied daring at challenging the regime. In Stalin's time, you just didn't do that kind of thing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Chalk and cheese. And I suppose the other thing too is that Stalin would never have done judo or sport bare-chested photo, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have the figure for it. <laughs> Sheila, it's been absolutely wonderful to chat with you again on Between the Lines. Thank you very much. Sheila Fitzpatrick is author of White Russians, Red Peril, The Cold War History of Migration to Australia. That's just out by La Trobe University Press in conjunction with Black Ink Books. And we'll put a link to the book on our website. Well, that's it for the show. And if you'd like to hear this or other episodes, including last week's debate about climate change policy, just go to abc.net.au and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you download your shows online. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Hope you tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.